Revelation chapter 21, and we're reading the first seven verses. A new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without costs from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Amen. Well, tonight we finish our sermon series that we've been doing in the past few weeks, looking at these big themes, these threads that are run through the Old and the New Testament. And we looked at a whole host of different subjects. We looked at things like sacrifice and covenant and kingdom and priest, some huge themes. And we've seen how they've run through right from the beginning of the Bible right through to the end of the Bible. And tonight we reach literally the culmination and the finish as we examine and look at what it says in the Bible about the return of Jesus Christ and what that will mean for us. But I want to begin by just recognizing that there are some people amongst us who are different. You might well know someone like this. You might even be someone like this. You can't tell from looking at them that they're like this. But spend any time around them and you start to realize that they are a bit different. You might have shared a meal with them. You might have gone out with someone like this. You might have gone out for a drink with someone like this. And unbeknown to you, they are one of these people. They're the sort of person who before they start to read a book turn to the last page and want to know how the whole thing turns out. Even now, some of you are looking at each other going, that's you. I find these people weird. I think, what is that? What is that? I don't, with due respect. Um, but I think it's a very odd thing to do. It's a very odd thing to do, to, to read a detective novel, for example. And the first thing you do before you read everything else is to turn to the last page of the book and find out how things finish. 
Or maybe you're somebody who record um, a football match or a rugby match, and you deliberately fast-forward it to the end of 80 or 90 minutes, whether it's rugby or football, to see whether it's worth watching. Uh, you you fast-forward to the end result and see the score at the end of the game, and based on the score at the end of the game, you then go back to the beginning and then watch the game from the start. Now, there are people like this. Maybe you know someone like this. I think you do, because some of you have just looked at a person who's sitting next to you that is exactly like this. But you see, if you know the ending, it changes how you watch a film. It changes how you read a book. It changes how you watch a rugby match or a football game. Because if you know the end at the start, then it totally transforms and colors, and I would want to say detracts, from your enjoyment of what is going on. Uh, I'll never forget a friend of mine uh, going to see when the film Titanic um, came out. And it was lovely to have the offertory with a sort of backing track of Love Actually. Uh, Lady in Red, I thought it was Love is All Around You, I feel it in my fingers, I feel it in your toes. But you were doing Lady in Red for Gemma. That's, that's nice, that's good. Well, we'll part that to one side, but um, a friend of mine went to see the film Titanic that also had a fairly iconic theme tune, uh, which maybe you'll play later on in the second set of worship, um, that, you know, love will go on and on and on. Um, and uh, the Titanic is a fairly well-known story. It's a fairly well-known historical event. This ship that was built in Belfast on its maiden voyage going across the Atlantic. I'm telling you, if you've not aware of the story of the Titanic, but you know, it was supposed to be the unsinkable ship and it hit this iceberg and it, and it, and it sank. And this film came out about 20 years ago with DiCaprio and Kate Winslet and um, it's been reenacted in all sorts of different ways. Um, and um, my friend Sarah went to see it. And, and she went to see it and settled down with a popcorn and she was watching it and she was weeping where she should weep and she was going, <gasps> when she should go like that. Um, and then she was amazed. When, when the, 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 the ship hit the iceberg and, and then things started to sort of unravel and, and you know, the, it tips further and further up, she was amazed. It was, it was in Birmingham. And she was amazed to hear these two girls, they're about 14, 15 years of age, one turned to the other. No joke, this really happened. And one said to the other, Oh, I think it's going to sink. You <laughs> <laughs> thought, you've come to see the film Titanic? and you didn't know the end of the story, that's amazing. If you know the end of the story, it changes how you watch something. You know, many of us this afternoon were, were at half-time in the England-Italy game, and we were in no doubt, really, as to how the game was going to finish. You know, we knew that England would get their act together eventually, um, and eventually they did. You know, when you watch a Scotland like yesterday, you knew the end result was never in... Doubt at any point, um, as they say, being a Scottish rugby fan or football fan, it's, it's not the despair that'll kill you, it's the hope. Um, but if you know the end of the story, it changes the way in which you read the story. It changes the way in which you watch a film. It changes the way in which you watch a rugby game. It changes the way in which you watch a football match. And what we get to look at this evening, over the next 20 minutes, is the end of the story. Because what we're thinking about is the second coming of Jesus. 
And in essence, what that says is that no matter how bad things may get, no matter how dire the world around us might seem, no matter the headlines in the news, no matter what is going on around us, no matter what um, President Trump does, no matter what um, North Korea does, no, no matter what happens in our global circumstance, our national circumstance, or our personal situation, no matter what happens, we know the end of the story. And what we get to look at this evening is, is a glimpse as to what happens at the end of the story. As I said, we've looked over the past few weeks in this short series, looking at these big themes in the Bible. So we've looked at things like covenant and kingdom and sacrifice and feast. And tonight, what we're looking at is, is the culmination of all of them. Because in the second coming of Jesus, we have the culmination of covenant and kingdom and feast and sacrifice and priest. All the big themes that we've been looking at are, are encapsulated and rounded off and find their fulfillment in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Tonight we get a glimpse into the end of the story and we know above everything else that everything will be all right. I love this uh, sign that's on the front of the Gallery of Modern Art in Dean Village. And every time that, that Kathy and I go and, uh, and visit the, the Modern Art Gallery and we wander around going, what the heck is that? Um, I come out and I look at this sign and think, everything will be all right. No matter how bad things may seem, no matter how dire the political situation might be, no matter how grim the world news might be, everything will be all right. If you've been to the Gallery of Modern Art, you'll know that there's also a, a similar sign um, in, the, in the back garden of one of them, um, which is, is wonderfully framed. It says, to, there will be no miracles here. And it's great because you, you, you look at that sign and behind it, you see the Episcopal Cathedral. <laughs> Take that either way. Um, but it's, it's, the, it's this sort of gate skyline of, of Edinburgh with all these church steeples and cathedrals and, and these words, there will be no miracles here. There's a story behind it. Um, but it's, it's a great uh, picture. But this slogan, everything will be all right, is in essence what is at the heart of the return of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to look at is three things very quickly. The nature of the book of Revelation, nice easy topic. The nature of the second coming and what it means for us. So that's what we're going to do very quickly. It's a quick overview. We're not going to deep down, dive into details or different theories. There are all sorts of books, all sorts of ideas around, uh, but we're going to take a flying visit at these three ideas. So firstly, if we look at the nature of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, firstly, it is the book of Revelation. It is not the book of Revelations. If you hear people say that, hit them. <laughs> Lovingly and truthfully, but correct them. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. It is a revelation that was given to a guy, probably the Apostle John, on an island in Patmos towards the end of the first century. Now, the first thing to say about the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation is a unique book in the New Testament. It is the only part of Christian prophecy that forms part of the Bible. 
It's the only bit of Christian prophecy that forms part of the Bible. The second thing to say about the book of Revelation is that it is the most difficult book to understand fully and read in the New Testament. If you are a new Christian, if you've just become a Christian, please don't start with the book of Revelation uh, because it is the most complicated and complex and sophisticated book and you will get tripped up. But what we find occurring again and again in the book of Revelation are, are, are deliberate echoes of things that occur in the Old Testament. So in the book of Revelation, there are references to things like Daniel chapter 7, where there's a very similar vision of the Son of Man described there. There are echoes of Isaiah chapter 65. There are echoes of Zechariah chapter 4. All passages that look forward to the coming of the Messiah, but that describe the coming of the Messiah, God's anointed, God's chosen one, with such details that they obviously didn't happen in the first coming of Jesus. So there are all these prophecies, there's about 360 odd prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to the coming of Jesus. But the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago was in a particular way at a particular time. So Jesus came the first time to this obscure sort of backwater of the Roman Empire. Um, he, he was born in Bethlehem, um, etc., lived for 33 years-ish, and then is, is put to death on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven. But what is missing is quite a few references or characteristics, if you like, that are found in the Old Testament that speak about the coming of the Messiah, that speak about the coming of God's Son, that speak about the coming of God's Chosen One. But there are elements that are described in Daniel 7 and Isaiah 65 and, and, and Zechariah chapter 4 and other passages like 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 and passages like Isaiah 40 or Ezekiel 1, which are descriptions of the messianic kingdom coming in power and glory and with might and with majesty. And it's obvious that there were lots of things that happened when Jesus came the first time. But the way Jesus came the first time was not with power and majesty and might and glory. He, he was born as a baby. God becomes a fetus. God becomes a baby. God becomes a toddler. And he, he divests himself of something of his glory. Is, uh, the, the technical word is kenosis in the, in the Greek. It's referred to in, in Philippians chapter 2 as Jesus emptied himself, not of his divinity, but of his glory. And it, it's like he sort of divests himself of, of a lot of the trappings of who he is because he comes humbly. And he comes in humility, and he comes in weakness, and he comes in frailty. The whole thing's entrusted probably to a couple of teenagers, Mary and Joseph. And there's no resonance in this first coming of Jesus with all these references in the Old Testament that speak about him coming in power and glory and might and majesty and awe. So, 
The book of Revelation is, is a very difficult book to understand. There are these echoes of what occurs in the Old Testament that now are picked up in the last book, the 66th book of the Bible. Because what happens now is rather than looking back to the coming of Jesus that first time, John is given this amazing picture. He's given messages for the seven churches, but also he's given this amazing picture of what it will be like when Jesus comes Again, when Jesus returns again. The book of Revelation is a very difficult book to understand. It's full of imagery and visions, analogies and pictures. One really, really important thing about the book of Revelation, it should never be taken literally. It's not meant to be read like that. Uh, all the way through the Bible are different types of literature. There's poetry, there's history, there's um, the songs. Uh, some of it's history. The book of Revelation is, is what's called apocalyptic literature. It's prophetic literature. It's not meant to be read as historical fact in that way. So it's never meant to be taken literally. It's given as a, giving us a glimpse of what the second coming will be like. And there are basically three approaches that people take, into, take to interpret the book of Revelation. So the first one says that the book of Revelation is describing the time when the Apostle John had his vision or revelation. So what's being referred to in all the pictures and the imagery and the, the analogies that are being described in the book of Revelation are things that were happening around the time when John lived towards the end of the first century. So Babylon, for example, might be the Roman um, Empire. And there are all these things like sort of clues found within the book of Revelation that are actually referring to the time when, when John lived and had this vision. The second approach says, well, it describes the end times, so-called. It describes the time just before Jesus comes back again. So one says it's describing the time when John actually lived and had his vision or visions. The second one says it's about just the end times, the time just before. And there's all sorts of theories and ideas about how long that period of time is, uh, whether it's a thousand years, a millennium, uh, or whether it's a hundred years. There's all sorts of theories. But it's the time just before uh, when Jesus returns. Or the third view says, well, actually, it, it's, and this is my view, is, is, is describing the time between the first coming of Jesus, so far 2,000 years, and the second coming of Jesus. And what's being described in the book of Revelation is what it will be like, what life will be like for the church, for the world, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So three basic theories time when John lived, the time just before Jesus comes back, and the time all in between that we're living in now, 2,000 years so far of human history. So that's the nature of the book of Revelation in five minutes. Now we come on to the nature of the second coming. Jesus says again and again to his disciples that he will return, particularly in Matthew 24 and 25 and 26. Um, he, he, he predicts that he will come back, 
Okay? So he predicts again and again. He says, don't worry, I've got to go away, but I'm coming back. I've got to go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower you and to be with you. But it's better that I go away, uh, but I will come back one day. Now, the nature of the second coming has tripped up Christians for 2,000 years. In America, um, your particular view of what you believe about the second coming will mean that you can be a pastor of a church or you can't be a pastor of a certain church. It will mean that you are appointed to uh, the divinity faculty of a seminary, a, a theological college in America, or the fact that you're not appointed to that particular faculty of that divinity uh, college. Um, because people get tied up on the right view of the second coming. I don't know why it is particularly hot in America, but they, they, they like to nail people, sometimes literally, um, by, by their view of the second coming. In the church in, in the UK, we're a bit more, yeah, we don't know. We're sort of British, we don't, yeah. But in America, they really want you to know, and whether you're pre or post or amillennial is really, really important, what you believe about uh, the second coming of Jesus. The irony is that there are over 250 references to it in the New Testament, but Jesus himself tells his followers just before he ascends into heaven not to worry about when it will happen and not to worry about how it's going to happen. So just before, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and, and the disciples say to him, is this the time, Lord? Is this the time when you are... It's not the time, Lord. Is this the time, comma, Lord? Is, they don't think he's Doctor Who. Um, they're saying, is this the time, Lord, when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the dates. Don't worry. Actually, elsewhere, in Matthew 24, he says that he himself doesn't know when it's going to happen. So Jesus says, don't worry about when it's going to happen. Don't speculate about when it's going to happen. When he himself is asked in Matthew 24, when's it going to happen? He says, only the Father knows when it's going to happen. I was speaking about 10, 12 years ago at the Keswick Convention, and I said that from the platform. And afterwards, there was a queue of people who said, you said that Jesus said that he doesn't know when the second coming is going to happen. I said, yes. They said, why did you say that? I said, because Jesus said it. <laughs> and they said, where does Jesus say it? I said, it's in Matthew chapter 24. They say, show me. So I looked in the Bible. I said, look. And they went, oh, yeah. <laughs> you see, what's happened in the church is that we've taken one part of what Jesus says, but we've then ignored the second part of what Jesus said. 2,000 years and Christians have worried and pondered when and how the second coming of Jesus would happen. But Jesus in Matthew 24 verse 36 said that only the Father knew and that only the Father knows. We don't know yet. This is interesting speculation time. But we don't know yet whether Jesus knows when he's coming back. We don't know. We don't know whether the Father's going, I'll tell you one day but not today. Who knows? It could be today, Jesus. And so the father and the son are going, is it today? Maybe not. I don't know. Better get your bags packed. Maybe not. We don't know. Or maybe when Jesus went back into heaven, immediately Jesus was told the date. We don't know. 
Only the Father knows, we're told, Jesus said in Matthew 24. But he does give us a few clues about how it might happen. Four quick things. He says it will happen suddenly. Matthew 24 and verse 43. He says that my coming will be like a thief in the night. He said if you knew when the thief was coming, you would have waited up for him. If you've ever been burgled, you'll know what that's like. If you know the time when a thief is coming, you wait up for him. You're waiting for him. So when they sort of come through your door, you're going, oi, oi, all right? <laughs> they probably know, won't steal anything from your house. If you know the time when a thief is coming, then the thief's not going to come. Jesus says, my second coming will be like a thief in the night. It will be sudden. The second thing is, unlike the first coming, it will be unmistakable. He said in Matthew 24 and verse 27, it will be like a flash of lightning from the east to the west. There will be nobody left in any doubt that this is happening. We're not going to be wandering around going, was that this? I'm not sure. Was it the second coming? I don't know. There's not going to be endless speculation on Sky News or the BBC. You know, people thought that they might have seen the second coming. No, Jesus says, it will be like a flash of lightning from the east to the west in the sky. Suddenly, unmistakably, thirdly, gloriously in power and majesty, and fourthly, decisively. Because when Jesus returns, it's the end of history. It's the curtain coming down. There's no encore. There's no curtain coming back up and a, a bit more that's it the it's the end of history as we know it so thirdly and finally what will happen then well contrary to what many people have thought in the church what the bible actually speaks more about is heaven coming down you know for years for decades even for centuries the emphasis has been about about us going to heaven there's only one problem with that. That's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible speaks again and again and again about heaven coming down. That picture in Revelation chapter 1, amazingly powerful and evocative, we're told what John sees and what John hears. And what John sees in his picture, in his vision, is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And so what's pictured is not us going up, but rather heaven coming down. And what's talked about is a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem being portrayed as a bride beautifully dressed. And then John hears something. He sees this, this vision of this, this new city coming down, heaven coming down to earth, and a new heaven and a new earth being created. And then he hears something. He's seen this, and now, now he hears something. And what he hears is this loud voice. And essentially, the voice says this. The story is finished. The covenant is fulfilled and surpassed. The kingdom is fully established. The sacrifice has been made. The table is set and priests are redundant. Because what God says is God lives with people. He is among them. They are his and he is theirs. And there's a very deliberate word that, that is used. It says about God dwelling with people. 
Now, elsewhere in the Bible, God is, is described as dwelling with people. The, the word is sometimes um, translated in some older versions as tabernacled. It means, um, it means camp, tent. It means make a home with. So in John chapter 1, we're told that, that God, Jesus, the word dwells with us, is amongst us. He, he camps amongst us in the person of Jesus. And what we're told in the book of Revelation is that God dwells, lives for all time with his people, and they will be his. And so rather than priests and covenants and kingdoms all being sort of glimpses of, of what will happen now, we experience and live in the full reality of, of, of who God is face to face. Because God will be with them. He will be their God and he will be, they will be his people. Their echoes going right back to Genesis and Exodus with the promises that were given to Abraham and to Moses that we started looking at weeks ago. God will be with them. That's what John hears. And this isn't a cold uh, doctrine or, or simplistic truth, but there's this lovely picture where in describing God living with people, it says there will be no death and there will be no mourning for the old order of things has passed away. And this remarkable picture of God himself wiping every tear from their eyes. The global cosmic God coming to transform, redeem, and renew the entire universe, and yet a God who comes so close that he wipes every tear from every eye. It's remarkable. And the more I've thought about it, the more, whenever I read this verse, and it's often a verse that I'll use at funerals, because for Christians, this is the reality. We live in a world where there is pain, there is disease, where there is sadness, there is sickness, and things happen that we do not understand, and they are incredibly painful. But here we have a promise. We were singing earlier on about all your promises are yes and amen. And it's this promise that that God himself will come and wipe every tear from every eye. And if, I've thought about it with my kids. When my kids were smaller, if they were crying, I would get down to their level. You can't wipe a tear. You know, if Josh or Nathan and Iona were, were crying, I mean, now with Nathan, I'd be doing that, but, um, you know, you can't just go, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll wipe at a distance. You have to get down. And you come down to their level, and it's close, and it's intimate, and it's personal. And it's a picture of what God will do. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. God wants to be that close. God wants to be that intimate. God wants to be that personal. It's incredibly tender and incredibly beautiful. And that, in essence, is what the second coming means. Now, there will be judgment, there'll be separation for some people from God. 
We don't know how that will be done. We know that if you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you live a life with God, you'll go to an eternity with God. If you live a life without God, you will pass into an eternity without God. We don't know how it will happen. We don't know exactly on what basis that decision will be made. We simply know that that will happen. But what it leaves us with is a challenge for us that, that our future should transform and determine and dictate how we live in the present. That knowing what we do about the future, it changes the way that we live here and now. That knowing the king is coming we live in such a way to bring in the kingdom and to show that we belong to the kingdom here and now. Knowing that God will restore all things, in Colossians 1 verse 20, God works to reconcile all things to himself. It isn't about us being rescued from an evil world to be taken to a pure heaven, but actually what's portrayed and pictured is this earth being restored and renewed, a new heaven and a new earth. Newness being renewed, this is how one writer put it, newness being renewed so that it is neither a replacement earth nor a new improved version on offer, but newness itself being renewed. Do you get a sense of how new this thing is going to be? It will not just be an improved version of what we've got, it will not just be a replacement version of what we've got, but it will be something of a totally new and different and better order of things than what we've got. Creation itself will be restored and renewed. But knowing that that will happen, that one day heaven will come down to earth, the kingdom will be fully established here on earth, even on heaven, in heaven as it is on earth, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, then the second coming of Jesus isn't something that we should look forward to with fear or guilt or spend a lot of time speculating about when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. But simply realize that it will happen. It will happen one day. And it will happen suddenly. And it will happen gloriously. And it will happen decisively. And everybody will left in, be left in no doubt that it's happened. But knowing that it will happen, because we know the end of the story, then the way in which we live life now should be different, should be changed, should be transformed. Because we know the end of the story, because we know that everything will be all right, we should live in such a way that we show people around us the glimpses of the kingdom that we belong to. Because we believe that the king is coming, we live lives that show that we belong to that kingdom here and now.